Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno on 77 WABC. You know, if you listen to this show, we like to explore the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries that took place in the past, the mysteries that uh, we've yet to solve in the future, mysteries that we haven't even begun to contemplate yet. And that's why one of the email uh, newsletters that I make sure to subscribe to is National Geographic because they do all sorts of great stuff related to history, related to space, related to science. And I really, no matter how busy I I find myself when that National Geographic newsletter comes in, I find myself reading every single word that it comes in my email. And I have to tell you, one of my uh, favorite contributors uh, to the National Geographic has become Amy Briggs. She's the executive editor of the National Geographic History Magazine and also the co-host of Overheard at National Geographic. She wears a lot of other hats as well, which, uh, if time permits, we'll touch upon. Amy, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the radio appreciate it oh thank you for having me it's really fun to be here so Amy I gotta tell you I was really interested in the the piece the digital piece that National Geographic did on uh, on the Titanic now I think a lot of people grow up thinking all right this was a, a ship that sank 110 years ago it's sad that it that it um, you know that it sank there was a great movie about it maybe a couple of great movies but um, if you were to tell folks something about the Titanic and what happened with the Titanic that they probably don't know or that's a popular misconception about what would it be oh wow that they probably, I mean, there's so many Titanic experts out there. I'm just waiting for them to pounce on me. Well, like, I mean, layman, I layman like me, layman like me, that uh, that that think that my extent of Titanic knowledge is that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio didn't make it to that uh, that raft with uh, Kate Winslet. And we can talk about what's your position about <laughs> if there's room on the door or not later. But I think what what blew my mind is how quickly the ship sank. That it just took two hours or so. And that was it. And it went down. You have this, like, boat that's the, like, the pinnacle of technology at the time. Everybody's like, it's unsinkable. It's tremendous, blah, blah, blah. And you have this sense of, like, hubris, right? They don't have enough lifeboats. The guy who's on the radio, he actually hears, like, people warning about, hey, there are icebergs in the water. And he's kind of like, ah, you know. The fact that they, you know, they have this glancing blow with an iceberg, and then in two hours it's over. It's like that's just all it took to take that take a ship like that down. Why did people think that it was unsinkable? I mean, the surest way to jinx something is by saying something's <laughs> never going to happen. Why were they running around saying this ship is unsinkable? Why was there such hubris that it couldn't sink? I think we had, and it's tough for me to say since I wasn't, you know, alive Naturally, at the time. Of sure. stuff, but I think that there's this, like, just optimism. I think human beings are fundamentally optimistic. There was a lot of, you know, design, a lot of technology, a lot of really smart people who got together to build this ship. And it had, you know, what was state of the art for the time. And, you know, you never know what the fly in the ointment is going to be that topples your, you know, your max your masterpiece, right? 
So I think it, it, to me, I think it's an over, it's just an overabundance of optimism and this faith of human progress. And we're just, it's all going to turn out fine. And sometimes an iceberg comes along and it doesn't. Mm, mm. Now, one of the myths uh, about the Titanic, or I, I don't know if it was a myth, but it's certainly something that's been said for the last 110 years or so, is that the band kept playing as the ship sank. Based on your research or your knowledge, is that true? I've not researched that personally, but I do believe that it that it is true. Yeah, hey, I mean, you talk about commitment. That is that's something. Now the well, um, when you have, I mean, you do have the captain going down with the ship. Like you do have, like there were people who knew they were they weren't getting off that boat and that they were going to die. And you know the the idea that the band stayed there and played isn't too far a stretch in my imagination. You know, from that sense of duty, let's say the captain had. Yeah, you wrote in this piece, uh, the headline of which is, oh, um, you know, did the Titanic have to sink? And then you chronicle what went wrong in the Titanic's final hours. You write, um, no, and I think you speak for a lot of folks, no matter how often its story is told, the Titanic never fails to capture my imagination. Maybe it's the grandeur of the ship, the discovery of its sunken wreckage, or the never-ending debate over if there was enough room for Jack on the door. Give me your take on the uh, on the Jack debate. Uh, could he have uh, Could he have survived at the end of that picture? I think he could have survived. It's not, I mean, Kate Winslet is Kate Winslet. She's not a large person. Right. She could have scrambled up there. You know, I, I'm, I'm surprised it didn't really come up. That's sort of the, like, this is the love of your life, and you're not like, hey, let me scooch over, make a little room for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, in fairness, I guess they wanted a dramatic ending, and if they both survived, maybe that wouldn't deliver uh, the, the kind of drama that they wanted. But it does. Yeah, because I think the class differences kind of rear their head once they're back on dry land in New York. <laughs> naturally, naturally, naturally. So did the Titanic have to sink? Did it have to? I mean, it. it What's that that nursing run like for want of a something, the whatever was lost, you know, there's this like nursery rhyme. And like to me, it's the same thing. It's the it's that one iceberg. Right. If they don't if they don't have a glancing blow, because if you look at the the gash on the ship and the footage that, you know, Bob Ballard took underwater where you can kind of see what they think the strike site was, um, it's it's not like in your mind, this great, huge, gaping wound in the side of the ship. It's actually kind of small and unimpressive. But that that article that that we wrote, like the lead image is, you know, a a very dramatic artistic rendering of the boat, like hitting an iceberg head on. And like, we're very clear on the caption, like this isn't what happened, but this is what our imagination thinks happened. So no, I don't think it had to sink, but you know, you, you, you puncture your hull you're you're gonna sink. Mm, mm. No, it's uh, yeah. I, I guess that's true. Do you think the movies ha- that that have been made for the last eighty, ninety years or so have helped or hurt uh, scholarship as it relates to the Titanic? Ooh, I didn't see the one like the one that was made in like the fifties, so I can't speak to that one. You know, I think to some degree the 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 Cameron one, I think both helped and hurt. I think it helped in the sense of generating tremendous interest in the story, in the past, in the people, in, you know, people wanting to know either, like, who were the people on the ship or how was the ship built or, you know, what were the, the you know, the minute-by-minute accounts of it going down, all that stuff. The stuff that I think hurts is when you get people sort of treating the, the wreckage site as a bit of a, a tourist attraction mm. rather than a grave. 
and wanting to, you know, haul things up from the site, either to, you know, some people want to put them in museums and preserve them. Other people said, like, that's a grave site. That's where people died. That's sacred land. You know, it, the commodification of the wreck itself, I think, is is problematic. But the general interest in the story, I think, is fantastic. What What is the state of the Titanic wreckage today? Is it degrading quickly? Uh, I mean, w- what's going on there? Do you have any idea? The The state of the, the wreck, as far as I know, is that it's doing what ships underwater do. It is degrading. How quickly it's degrading, I have no idea. Um, that's definitely a question for a marine scientist. We're talking with Amy Briggs. She's a writer, an editor. You also uh, did a terrific podcast back in March looking at the life and the legacy of uh, Amelia Earhart. And it was at a time that I was uh, steeped in a lot of research about Amelia Earhart's life and Amelia Earhart's disappearance. What do you think her legacy is as an aviator, as as someone that's been so celebrated as a pioneering woman? What is her legacy uh, this many years after her disappearance? I mean, just as an aviator, you know, she set so many records, you know, she was, and she, I think, pushed herself so hard because of this, like, first experience she has flying across the Atlantic. So the first time she flies across the Atlantic is sort of, it's shortly after Charles Lindbergh does. And so they, there's this stunt, basically, they're like, who's going to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic? And she's, like, literally sitting in the back of the plane. She didn't fly it the first time. And, like, she got made fun of in the press. And they were like, oh, she was a sack of potatoes. And I think that lit a fire under her to be like, I'll show you sack of potatoes. And so then the next time she flies across the Atlantic, she does it by herself. Mm. And then she's, like, set in records and pushing herself and constantly, I think, trying to be like, I can do this because I'm a person and I'm motivated and I know how to fly. And just because I happen to be a woman, that's that's immaterial. You should be trying to push yourself and do all these things, too. Do you have a theory about what happened with her disappearance? I'm totally boring. I think I'm in the crash and sank theory. Crash and sank. Yep. I think they missed the island. And I think the plane is probably in the water around around Howland Island somewhere. Mm. Why it's a boring you, one. No, hey, I mean, sometimes the boring answer is the, uh, even if it's the most obvious, is the correct one. Why do you think it's been such a struggle for folks to find the plane these many years later? Because the Pacific Ocean is huge. Mm. I think that's the, the thing that I know when I think about this mystery, I fail to appreciate. It's just how immense the Pacific Ocean is. And when you look at the the area where, you know, the different areas where people are searching, you're looking for what appears to be a big plane when it's on the land, but you put it in scale, the Pacific Ocean, and it's tiny. It's also really, really deep. You know, the the area around Howland, I think, is roughly like 20,000 feet deep. That's not an easy place to go search, you know, for a tiny little airplane. It's also made out of aluminum, so if it got caught in any sort of current, that would just be torn apart. Um, you know, the the thing I think is just that it's it's really, really, really big. It's total the proverbial needle in a haystack mm. to mm. find that plane. And you don't see it ever being found, I guess, for those same reasons. I think if anybody's going to find it, it's going to be Bob Ballard. Ah, well. I think. Well, I, I know, and I'm not just saying that because he's a National Geographic Explorer and he found the Titanic and all that stuff. Like, he, I kid you not, he has this boat called the Nautilus, and it's like the Batcave. 
like any kind of underwater detective tool you can think of, it is on that boat. Wow. So he's out there like Bruce Wayne in his bat cave, and he does what he calls a very, I think he calls it like mowing the lawn. He'll pick an area, you know, and mark it off like a big square, and then he just goes, traverses it, goes back and forth with, you know, all of the wonderful underwater, you know, detecting tools that he has. And he will search every inch of that particular spot. And if he finds something, he finds something. If he doesn't, he moves on. Like, he doesn't get attached to, like, but it's not supposed to be here. Right. Like, he's, you know, he's a scientist. And if his hypothesis, you know, the evidence doesn't support it, then he finds he finds another hypothesis. Uh, talking with Amy Briggs, she's the executive editor of National Geographic's History Magazine and the co-host of Overheard at uh, at National Geographic. You know, on March 15th, I basically verbatim plagiarized everything that you wrote about the uh, assassination of Julius Caesar to make it sound like I knew some interesting factoids, interesting <laughs> trivia about the assassination of Julius Caesar. So uh, it turns out uh, he probably didn't say a tu brute, did he? Probably not. I think we have to blame Shakespeare for that. I mean, it's a great line. You know, I'm sure Julius Caesar, wherever he may be, is like, I wish I said that, <laughs> you know. Uh, what did he say? Do we have any idea at this point? Um, there are accounts that were written about it, but they were written, like, way after his death. Because, like, a lot of the guys that were writing, like, they have different takes on it. Like, there's that movie, um, that Japanese movie, Rashomon where you have, like, the different perspectives of the characters but on the same event, and everything's just a oh, little right. oh, bit different. Oh, yeah, that's been my experience anecdotally, trying to get people that were in the room with me at things to say they saw the same thing I did. That's absolutely true. Exactly. Like, this one guy, Suetonius, says that, like, when Caesar dies, he doesn't say a thing. He just is sort of like, ugh, and falls over. Um, you know, they have him. They pretty much all say that, like, He's at the base of this big statue of Pompey, and that's where he dies. But there's not a whole lot of consensus mm. of what his last words were. Mm. Well, I mean, again, uh, when you're being stabbed that many times, you may not have time to come up with something something poetic, right? Probably a little busy defending himself, I would guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, you did uh, a really interesting piece, which uh, it's some the kind of thing that you— you and National Geographic do so much of that I would never even thought of, would never even think of, but it was just so interesting. When you think of piracy on the high seas, you generally think of something that's dominated by men. But you did a really interesting piece about a 19th century pirate queen. There were female pirates? Yes, there were female pirates. Um, the one that we, we studied with, uh, or we talked about was Cheng Shi who um, was 19th century in China, arguably the most successful pirate of all time, had a fleet of like 80 estimates vary, somewhere between like 60,000 and 80,000 people. So they say that like Blackbeard had like hundreds, so to put it in perspective. There are also these, you know, the golden age of piracy, you know, the Blackbeard era, all that stuff. There was a, a male pirate, this guy Calico Jack Rackham, and he sailed with two female pirates, um, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, and they they wind up all getting caught and are taken to Port Royal in Jamaica, and they're you know put on trial and Calico Jack is hanged and then they put his body in a gibbet like out by the port you know as a warning to pirates, but both Anne and Mary were pregnant, so they went to jail, um, and I believe Mary dies in jail and they don't know what happened to Anne. Some mm. people think she wound up escaping and going to North Carolina, but wow. sources vary about that. 
that's uh, that's wild. Uh, lastly, Amy, um, your Twitter handle, and I do suggest folks follow you on Twitter. There's a lot of interesting stuff on there at Briggs in Space. It, it um, you, 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 I'm guessing, have been following the developments with the privatization of space exploration pretty closely. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious just to get your take on where you think we're going. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson. Are you optimistic in terms of uh, the future of the space program? Um, it depends, I think, on what we plan to do with it. You know, um, I think the idea of just taking people up, I mean, you could take people up there for the fun of it, but that feels a little bit like Walt Disney World to me. But at the same time, I think, like, you know, the exploration of the planet was, yes, it was it was funded by the crown and, and then private business and for good or ill, but that's how we got to know where things were, are, how, how the different societies around the world connected. You know, if we want to find out what's out there, you know, how what's the harm in having, I think, more more exploration mm. rather than less. It's mm. a really, really big solar system. It's a really big galaxy. It's a really big universe. You know, I think there's enough field out there for everybody to play. You know, the, the like, I don't know, the stuff that gets me hung up is the like, you know, it's too it's too bug funny. You're gonna laugh at me. No, but no. it's like the you know when Daffy Duck gets to you know the planet X and he's like I claim this you know planet in the name of the Earth and then Marvin the Martian shows up <laughs> I claim this for Mars. Like, how do you get into the like okay who owns what out in space because we're people and we're possessive and we want to own things and how is that what what's the challenge there you know how do we solve that problem before we even get up there. Because if you're someone like Bezos or Elon Musk or whoever, who name the other rich guy, Branson, you know, who wants to go there, like, you know, they're thinking about right. that. There's right. no way they're not. No, that's but, uh, like, that's. Yeah, no, it's it's very a valid concern. Is uh, is do we get the same value as of uh, sending uh, Michael Strahan for a ride into space for 14 minutes that uh, that society did from something like the moon landing? It's difficult to make yeah. a case that we do. You're exactly right. Anything you're working on now that you're excited about that folks can look forward to? Let's see. What are we working on now? So for History Magazine. What are we wrapping up right now? We just wrapped up something cool, and my brain is totally blanking. Hey, that's um, the perils of uh, you know doing radio interviews late at night. Believe me, it's know, a struggle know, for me. Oh, I am so – this one I am really excited about. So this summer in our July-August issue, we're doing a piece on Ulysses S. Grant, mm. which I'm super excited about um, because I, I – my Civil War knowledge is, is pretty good, but my early Civil War knowledge, not so good. And, like, I I wasn't fully aware of how Grant came on the scene and rose up to become, you know, the, the commander-in-chief of – not the commander-in-chief, the commander of all the armies. And so he, you know, he has this fantastic story of, like, you know, he graduates from West Point. He's not a great student. He goes into the Army, and he doesn't love it. And so he leaves in 1854, and he goes and tries to be a farmer, and he tries to be a businessman. He doesn't do that well. And then the Civil War breaks out. He's in Illinois and, like, kind of gets pulled back in. 
and he gets pulled back in. I believe I think he starts out as a colonel, and then you know, battle after battle, he just keeps succeeding and getting promoted and getting promoted and winning and winning. And that the story itself is just it's just fantastic, especially. And I wrote about this in my editor's note. And I'm telling you, this is my like my summer book club recommendation, mm. even though I don't usually do those things. The, the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant are so good. They do not read like something a ni- someone in the 19th century wrote. It's not like flowery language. It's not dense. He's like really, really dryly funny, very honest, straight to the point. One of the things that's fascinating is when he's talking about his Civil War battles, a lot of the men he's fighting against, he either knows from West Point or he fought with them in Mexico. So he has all this like insider knowledge of how they're going to, you know, they're going to operate in the field. And he applies that. And there's this one scene where I think it's the Battle of Fort Donaldson. It's one of the early ones. And he defeats, he defeats the Confederacy at this place. And it turns out the guy, the commanding officer of the fort, is a buddy of his from college. And so the guy, you know, he comes in and he's like, my, my other commander left to go to another post. And if I had really been in command the whole time, you would have beaten me. And Grant says something like, if you had been in the command the whole time, I wouldn't have fought the battle the way I did. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's terrific. You know, I, uh, I was at a birthday party for his 200th birthday uh, this week, and I learned a lot about him. And that was the one thing everybody said, is that if there's only one uh, autobiography of a president that you read, it's got to be the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. And I was embarrassed to say that I haven't read it. But uh, you've now reinstilled my resolve to do just that. Amy Briggs, I will, uh, I'll look forward to uh, reading you in National Geographic, checking out your your podcast. And again, people could follow you on Twitter at Briggs and Space. I hope we could talk again. I would love to. This was so much fun. I like now I'm like I'm all ready to go. I will really get that middle of the night thing. <laughs> exactly. Amy Briggs, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead.